0: Hey, guys, thank you so much for joining us for the NCC podcast. God is doing so many great things in our community, and I trust that he's doing great things in your life as well. And I trust that God is going to speak to you through this message. Man, I am so excited to see all of you today. The weather, come on, somebody. Is anybody excited about the fact that we get to wear sweaters now? I mean, you know, it's just, it's, for those of us who put them up, like, do do you put your stuff away, like, in a, and then you get it down, and then there's just this happy moment? Okay, I have to do my check. How many of you have put up your Christmas tree already? Just wave at me. Just be proud of it. It's fine. They're going to judge us anyway. I had mine up November 3rd. I was two days late because I am a November 1st person. I like it up as soon as I possibly can. Well, it is that season. It's that holiday season, that Thanksgiving and Christmas, and that time that we lean in to our families, but also to our communities. And so we're doing a series right now called Thanks Living. Thanks living, because we don't want to be people who just give thanks one day a year, right? We are people who want to cheer enthusiastically. We are people who want to give generously. We want to do that as a habit all throughout the year. And so we are looking at Acts 2, starting in verse 42, because the early church had to learn how to be the innkeepers that Jesus had called them to be? They had to learn how to follow Jesus. They had to learn how to do it without Him in the flesh with them. And so, after the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, and 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 the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, which is the way that we describe God the Holy Spirit came and he became available for anybody who believes in Jesus. Anybody who decides that they're going to follow Jesus has access to this power that resides in the Holy Spirit. And so after the day of Pentecost came, then suddenly we start to see this massive shift in culture among the early church. Jesus has been resurrected for weeks now. But suddenly, things start to shift, and we read about it in Acts 2.42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and their possessions and they shared money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, The Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your words that change our lives. Lord, I pray that as I speak that the people in this room would not just hear the words that come out of my mouth, but they truly would hear the words that come from your heart. Speak to us, Lord. Teach us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So earlier this fall, we were talking about ending the year in full strength, and we looked at this passage, and what we decided is that this was a pattern for learning to follow Jesus. And so this is what the early church did. First, they studied together. They, they worked on learning how Jesus lived. When we talk about the apostles teaching, there was nothing necessarily written down at that moment because Jesus had just been resurrected. So what were the apostles teaching? They were teaching the stories of Jesus. They were saying, Hey, you remember when we were by the sea of Galilee and Jesus healed that person. Do you remember that? Well, this is what he said after, Hey, Do you remember when, when, when it seemed like everything was gone and all hope was lost when there was that big storm and and we thought that the boat was just going to totally sink and he showed up out of nowhere. Do you remember how he turned to us and said that we should have more faith? They're telling the story and the people are leaning in and they're studying and they're learning how Jesus lived. But then they're turning around and they are practicing living that way together through fellowship because we cannot practice Christianity alone. It's not meant to be practiced alone because it is more than a concept or a uh, body of study. Instead, it is something that has to be put into action. Action because when we say, Yes, we should love others as Christ loved us, believe me, you're not going to find out what that's like till you try it. Or you should love your enemies. One of the funniest things to me is that people will often act as though loving their family is the outflow of that scripture. You know what Jesus said about that? He said, even pagans love their family. Yeah. Loving your enemy? Like, come come on. Think about that person or that group of people. What's that look like? What's that look like to truly love your enemy? You, You don't figure that out until you put it in to practice, and what's crazy is that it is the practice that will transform you. I know it does me. And then inviting others to live that life with them through hospitality. Hospitality—it's just offering the privileges of insidership to the outsider, offering the privileges of being an insider to the outsider without them earning it and then finally submitting all of life to God through prayer. This is the process for the first church. This is the process for the right now church. It has never changed and when a group of people anywhere in the world decide to live this way when they study and learn what Jesus lived and what he said and when they put it into practice and then they invite others into that life through hospitality and they submit it all to God in prayer. This is what happens every single time. They start to see miracles. They start to give generously. They start to worship in their daily lives. No more is worship simply two hours on a Sunday. Somebody got really nervous when I said two hours. Don't worry. That was like I just was saying that kind of as a placeholder in in this statement. It's all right. We haven't like completely changed. You haven't been here for a while. You're like, oh gosh, now it's two hours. Oh no. Anyway, but worship is no longer just a placeholder on a Sunday morning. Instead, it is a part of every single action and interaction because we understand that when we choose to do everything as unto the Lord, our work becomes worship. The way we care for our family becomes worship. The way that we live our lives becomes worship. They lived gratefully and they were a growing community. And so in this series, we're, we're leaning into a moment because this is the moment that the early church is in. And the Apostle Paul, who's one of the leaders of the early church, is expanding the early church past Jews into Gentiles. If you're wondering what a Gentile is, it's everybody who's not a Jew. So he's expanding it. So so the Jerusalem church had a culture that we read about, but now he's expanding and teaching people who have no concept of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. He is teaching them to follow Jesus. And in one of his letters to the church at a town named Corinth, he, he takes up an offering. It's basically his whole point of the letter. He says some other stuff, but the bottom line is he is letting them know that he is coming, that he is sending people to pick up their offering that they have promised to give to the church in Jerusalem. Because the church in Jerusalem was dealing with a lot. They were dealing with persecution and they were dealing with crippling poverty. And so he is talking to these Greeks about giving an offering to the Jews, and so that's where we find ourselves, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We did a deep dive on this last week. And so if you want to hear that, you can get on the podcast and you can listen to it. But we're just going to briefly overview it, and then we're going to build onto it. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have not what you don't have. Verse 13, of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and could share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. As the scriptures say, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over. And those who gathered only a little had enough. And then we skip a few lines and get to 2 Corinthians 9 starting in verse 6. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide, say decide. In your heart, how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure for God loves a person who gives cheerfully and God will generously provide all you need then you'll always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others as the scriptures say they share freely and give generously to the poor their good deeds will be remembered forever for God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and bread to eat in the same way he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. So there's lots of ways to, to look at this because the word of God can be read on many different levels. But when it talks about sowing seeds, we, we can think about it in a lot of ways, but, but one of the ways that's most clear from the plain language is this, is when you sow generosity, you will reap Generosity. Now, what people hear when I say that is, if I put $5 in the offering, I will get 50 back. And not how this works. It's just not. But when I sow generosity, I become a more generous person. Generosity empowers me to be more generous. And I start to live a bigger life because the Bible says that the world of the generous gets bigger and bigger and the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. And here's the truth. You're not born generous. Now, some of us have an easier time with it than others. My, my, my second daughter, Julietta will give you anything. But it's not just because she's generous. It's because not very many things matter to her. She doesn't care about money. She doesn't care about all these things. And she happens to be bookended by two girls who care very much about both of those things. What Julietta cares about is she cares about your time and your attention and you being right next to her. That's what she wants. And when she has to share mama, you get to find out how stingy she truly is. We're not born generous. If you don't believe me, just come sit in my house and watch my two sons. It's like, Papa just bought me this new transformer. Can your brother play with the thing that Papa gave you? No. Can he touch it? No. Why are you crying? He looked at it. What in the world is going on here? We aren't born generous. And yet, generosity is what allows us to have a bigger life. Generosity is what allows us to have better relationships. Some of us are so stingy in our compliments. Some of us are so stingy in our communication. We're stingy in our time. We're stingy in in all our approval. We feel like everybody has to just like you know, meet a certain standard and it's not them, it's us because we haven't sowed those seeds of generosity. We haven't learned how to be generous. We haven't reaped that harvest of generosity in our lives. And it's so crucial that we understand that our giving is connected to becoming a disciple. You can't separate it. You can't build a wall around your bank account and say, Jesus, you can have it all, but that, it just doesn't work that way. You can't be generous in one area of your life and then hold on too tightly in another area. Eventually, it will cause conflict within your soul. And so when we look at these passages, there's so much we can get out of them. I mean, we learn a lot from this. We learn how we shouldn't give. We shouldn't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. Hey, I don't know what your experience with giving in the past has been. Nobody's going to pressure you today or any other day. You know why? Because you have all the power. You give what you want to give. I give what I want to give. It works but we're going to learn about principles of generosity and giving from the word of God. But we shouldn't be giving in response to pressure. Like I don't want to, but I have to, I mean, I guess, you know, that's not the way that we're supposed to give. We also shouldn't give begrudgingly or indecisively where we're like, Oh yeah, I'm excited. Cause I'm super emotional right in this moment. And so I'm going to give, but then five minutes later, it's like, nah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm really into giving. I don't know if how it is. Right. Do you feel me? That was called an emotion sound. Some of you connected with it. But anyway, how should we give? We should give decisively. We should just decide in our heart and then follow through. Just decide in our heart and then follow through. We should give according to what we've been given. This is one of the most countercultural moments in this entire offering speech, because remember, he is not teaching them the concept of giving because giving is a concept even in pagan societies. He is teaching them the Christian way to give. And the Christian way to give says that we don't give so that others will praise us, but rather so that others will praise God. But we also all get to be involved in giving. Because in these societies, it was just the people who were really wealthy who had a chance to be a part of giving. And what Paul is saying here is that we are all able to participate, not according to what we don't have, but according to what we have. So it's not about going, oh man, I've got to reach this certain amount. It's about looking at what we have and then giving proportionally out of what we have, and then with a cheerful heart. With a cheerful heart. Giving should not feel like taxation. Right? We talked about that last week. Nobody's happy to give money to the IRS. Nobody, nobody like is at the end of the year, like, I can't wait to give more taxes, right? I had a friend who was very excited about, she was like, we need to be taxed more. And I said, you can start. Like you could just write extra right now, like, like in advance, but nobody wants to do that, right? We don't like voluntarily go, you know, I think that the government really needs more of my money. No, we wait till they make us give them our money. But that's not the way that giving should feel. We should give with a cheerful heart out of gratitude for God, for all he's given us, and not so that we will receive gratitude or glory from other people. So that's kind of the baseline of where we are. But as we figure out where this came from, because remember, Paul is writing all of this after having spent time with people, who watched Jesus live. So what he's writing about giving is coming from somewhere. What he's codifying in his letters to the early church is coming from somewhere. And I think that we can look at, at a couple things and we can see why it might've been important to Paul to put these particular points And and we can find this story in Mark 12, 38 through 43, but we're going to read it in Luke 20, starting in verse 45. Then with the crowds listening, Jesus turned to his disciples. Okay. When it says the crowds listening, there are a whole bunch of people from all different walks of life who are hanging out. And that always includes Pharisees, Pharisees were experts in the Jewish law. They were lawyers. All right. And they followed Jesus around trying to trick him. That's just, I mean, no, really is really what happened. Now, a few of them came to him with sincerity, trying to learn, but very, 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 very few, and publicly, they did not do that at all. It was only in private that a few of them came to, but in public, they're always trying to trick him. So it's that, he is now, he's standing in front of a crowd, but he's not talking to the crowd anymore. He's talking to his disciples, right? Some of you who have kids have done this, right? The kids are in front of you, but then you turn and you talk to your spouse about the kids. But who's the audience for what you're saying? It is the children. So I want to make sure that you understand that what he's about to say, he is saying it to his disciples, but they are not the audience. It is all of these people. You ready? All right, let's go. Then with the crowds listening, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, beware of these teachers of religious law. For they like to parade around in flowing robes and love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace. And how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be severely punished. And this is where we sometimes miss it when we're reading the Bible because we stop right there. And we stop there because there's another chapter that's coming. And we think that that's how it was written. With chapters dividing, and we're used to modern books where when you go to the next chapter, you don't have to keep the end of the chapter before in mind. But if we don't understand the context of all the stories, we will get the wrong messages from them. So Jesus says this in front of the Pharisees, basically calling them out for shamelessly cheating widows out of their property and then pretending to be pious. And then we go right to this. While Jesus was in the temple, so he's in the temple teaching, and now it says, while he was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. They're called mites, two small coins. And Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them for they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. And we can see there the root of this proportional giving focus that Paul has because Jesus is saying I don't take this person's gift and this person's gift and put them next to each other and measure them next to each other I'm only looking at you I'm not putting Destiny and Clarissa next to each other and saying, okay, well, Clarissa gave this much. Destiny gave this much. Who's the winner? That's not how it works at all. I'm looking to see. Are you just giving me kind of like a little bit out of your surplus? Or are you putting me first? But here's, here's where we can make the mistake. We can think that Jesus is saying, go emulate the widow. Hear me. Stay with me. We can think that what Jesus is saying is, you should be like her. Everybody should be like the widow. That's exactly who you should be. But he doesn't say that. In fact, there's two major clues that would tell us that that wasn't the primary message of this passage. The first one is this, is he only explains that she gave more because it's judged in proportion to what she had. He makes an observation. He does not say, go and do likewise, as he does so many times in the New Testament. He doesn't say, be like that, as he does so many times in the New Testament. He doesn't say, that's the only offering I'll accept, as he does so many times in the New Testament. There is no explicit command or even um, affirmation of her gift. Instead, it comes right after he has said, that the religious people are cheating women, cheating widows out of their property. It's a much more realistic interpretation to say that this is an example of what he was yelling about only a couple lines earlier. The widow is an example of how the rich Gave out of their abundance for show, but did not move to help the poor among them. The widow is an example of how the rich gave out of their abundance for show, because remember, the rich are right in front of her dropping the gift. She's walking behind. People who are dropping huge gifts into the temple fund. And it's obvious she has a widow. It's obvious she doesn't have anything. It's obvious that she is destitute. And yet the people around her do nothing to move to help her. And remember that for the early church, giving to the poor and caring for the poor was the primary motivation for them. It was the primary motivation for them. Jesus is not saying here, give all your money away and become destitute. His comments were laying the foundation for a new way to give that would change everything. Each person giving according to what they had been giving, not what they didn't have, and not to receive praise, but out of gratitude. He was saying, hey, you are equal in your giving no matter what you give. When you give, out of what you have, decisively, cheerfully, and gratefully. And that changes my perspective because I'm not trying to outdo my neighbor. It's between me and God. It's my heart. It's my actions. And I don't get to wiggle out of it by pointing at someone else and saying, but I'm doing better and I'm doing more than they're doing. It's not what they do. But what will I do? What will I decide to do? Not out of pressure or compulsion. What will I decide to do with what God has given me? I'm going to ask Andy to come out and play the guitar. But I think there's still more context. Because I think there's just still more that we we need to get out of this story. And so... So I told you this story is written in Mark, too. It's not just written in Luke. And earlier in the chapter in Mark, there's this, there's this other story that I think feeds into this. I, I, I'm going to read it to you later. The leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus. I told you, they're everywhere, Later, the leaders sent Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial and don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? And Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and he said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. When they handed it to him, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And his reply completely amazed them. See, they were trying to trap Jesus because paying taxes for the Jews was a sign of their oppression. The the Romans had no problem taking you or your spouse or your kids as slaves if you didn't pay your taxes. They were brutal. They were brutal. Tax collectors were considered the ultimate betrayers of their people. And so they come to Jesus and, and they know that if he says, yes, you should pay your taxes, that the people are gonna turn against him. They're going to be angry. They're going to be like, this isn't our Messiah. He's not going to stand up for us. But they also know that if he says, don't pay your taxes, that he's going to get arrested. And so they think that they have him completely square. but Jesus is brilliant. I mean, Jesus is so brilliant. And he never answers questions on anybody else's time or anybody else's platform. And so he asks for a coin and he says what he says. He, he, he looks and of course it's Caesar. Who's, who, you know, whose picture's on there? Whose picture is on the coin? It's Caesar. Okay, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But then he says something that none of the Romans and none of the people who were were in the establishment would have understood what it meant. But every Jew there would have known exactly what it meant. He said, give to God what is God's. So what has the image of Caesar should be given to Caesar and what has the image of God should be given to God. And every single person in that crowd who was Jewish would have known that they were created in the image of God. So what he was saying to them is that you owe God your whole self. That Caesar may demand his coin, but you are not under Caesar because you are fully owned by almighty God and he owns every part of you. So you have a choice of whether you will give to him your whole self. He's saying, you're part of a different system. And while they can try to oppress you, you're still free because you're his. Because you're his. You can take back the story. I wonder if that little widow was in that crowd. I wonder if we look at her actions in this light, if it's not just an act of desperation or a result of her being deceived or even an unwise decision. Maybe it's an act of defiance. Because you have to understand that the coin that she threw away into the offering, that she put into the offering, was worth about 164th of a day's wage. It wasn't close to enough for her to live on. It wasn't close to enough for her to even be able to survive on. It wasn't even close to enough. And so here she is, and she doesn't have enough. And yet she knows that she's able to give her whole self to God. And I just wonder if it wasn't a moment of defiance on her part, throwing herself on the mercy of God, because there was no mercy to be had at that point outside of God. Over and over, Jesus gave people the power to change their story the widow should be honored for her gift but we should be part of ensuring that the widow that the poor around us have more than enough so that they too can participate in giving so that others will give glory to God as a community, we're, we're focused on school poverty, and we're sp- focused on school poverty because it's the great equalizer. Education's the great equalizer. If a child can learn how to read, write, and communicate clearly, their prospects in life go up, and we as a society are, are really brought up all together. It's an amazing thing. I did my undergraduate um, distinction in economics on the impact of, um, having a opportunity to immigrate if you have education on the home country where you left from. And this is what I found out, is it doesn't matter how horrible the place is that everybody's leaving from, if everybody gets more education, it improves that place. Education is a great equalizer. And we're focused on removing those poverty barriers that keep kids from learning and that disrupt our classrooms. Why are we doing that? We're doing that because Jesus cared about the poor and we want to learn the way he lived and we want to practice living that way. And then we want to invite other people to live that way and we want to submit it all to prayer. We're just doing it because this is part of learning how to follow Jesus. And you guys feed kids every single week. And so many of you are are consistent givers and you're recurring givers and you lean in and you give generously, but this is the thing. I don't want anybody to miss out being a part of this. I don't want anybody to miss out on sowing seeds of generosity so that you and your life can reap generosity. So we, we added it up and it's about $80 to feed a kid between now and the end of the year. Our kids are doing $5 to feed one kid for one weekend. Our students are doing the same. My little girl Carolina is so excited about this. She was selling cookies last night at at the women's event at SC Church because she wanted to be able to have something that she could give so that she could feed some kids. Our kids are on board, our students are on board. It's exciting. Why is it exciting? Because we each give according to what we have, not what we don't have. So you don't have to look next to you and go, well, he can do 10 kids. I feel bad. You know, I feel like right now, you know, I can only give one, and it doesn't matter. It's about putting the things that matter to God first, planning it out, saying, you know what? I can do $20 a week. I can do $3 a day. I can eat PB&J instead of ordering out for lunch a few times. I can do that. I can do that. Because I want to do it all together. Let's be people who are generous in our giving, but we do it Jesus way. We give according to what we have not what we don't have. We give decisively, not indecisively and not begrudgingly. We give cheerfully, so excited that we get to be a part of making God's name great in the earth. But first and foremost, let's be people who give our whole self. Who give our whole self. I'm not talking about your whole bank account. I'm talking about your whole self. Your whole self. Because when you give God your whole self, then it's a lot easier to be able to implement the habits, the practices that Jesus did. Thank you for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and share our podcast. For more content from NCC and how to get connected, visit ncc.team.